Well, it's good to see you all. Mostly a nice day outside. I was talking to a friend in Minnesota on Friday. He said, it's really windy here. Walk outside today. So it seems like we got their wind. And uh, I understand it's supposed to get chilly tomorrow. So welcome to March. You know, so we're not sure if it's going to whimper or roar out. But we'll see how it goes. I invite you to turn, if you bring your Bible with you, or your phone, or wherever, to turn to Genesis chapter 10. And as we kind of come to this part of where we are in the story, in the accounts, we're coming to the point of origins. As we're talking about origins, we're also kind of getting ready to shift gears. So as we kind of walk through the process in the beginning of Genesis, we're now shifting gears and preparing to go into the different part of the story of Genesis. But one of the things I want you to see as we start to walk through chapter 10 and 11 is we're seeing a significant shift, we're seeing origins, we're seeing a significant shift, and we're also seeing Abraham being introduced at the end. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Father, just thank you for the time this morning that you've given us, and I thank you for the privilege you give us to look at your word. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word so that we can track and understand who you are, what you've done, so we can try to wrap our heads around and understand why you've done the things you've done. But Father, also in the midst of all of this, to see that account of how you have revealed yourself and how you have worked this plan of salvation in Jesus, Father, thank you. I thank you very much for the amazingness of who you are and for the amazingness of what you have done. Father, as we take time now to look at your word, guide our time. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. So as you look at the notes, you're going to see origins. And I'm going to just go right to that first verse of chapter 10. And as we look at that, it says this. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. And now we start to see the conversation and the story about what takes place after the flood and the moving into what we, into the history we now know and much of what we understand. Now, I put this point, and I called it kind of origins, and I did that because we, do you ever wrestle with the question of origins? We don't always a whole lot, because we understand our history, we understand where we come from. But a lot of us sometimes look at that stuff, and we want to understand our origins, we want to understand our history, so we go to... uh, history.com or or something like that and we we plug in and try to understand our history. Now a number of years ago when I turned 40, so it is a number of years ago, uh, Joan, Joan, Joan gave me a gift and we saved some money and we went to Scotland. And we went to Scotland, we started out in England, went up to Scotland and all that kind of stuff. But we went to Scotland because my background is Scottish. And so I wanted to kind of understand some of my history and I wanted to kind of track through some of my history. Um, Rob Roy, we're told, is one of my ancestors. So he kind of went and found where he was buried and all that kind of stuff. But it was just kind of cool and understanding some of those parts of history. Understanding origins. 
And so as Moses is writing and as he's recording what God has given, it kind of makes sense that as we get to this point, he starts to walk through the whole issue of origins because as he is writing for the Jewish audience, but ultimately also as he's writing for a broader audience that reads and understands scripture at a later point in time, he's writing so that they can kind of put themselves in context. They can start to see where they fit and understand all the things that are going on. And they start to understand who the people are around them and where all of they come from. And so he starts to walk through that. So let's kind of touch on some of this a little bit. First of all, we see Japheth's sons. Now here's one other thing that's interesting to me. We, we look at this and we see in verse 10, he says, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But he starts with Japheth. Now I'm thinking Japheth is the youngest, but that's the one he starts with. All right. So Japheth, and I love names. So there's a part of me that wants to say, and all these people. But we'll, we'll give it an attempt. But look at uh, verses 2 and 5. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magad, Madai, Javan, uh, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. And it goes on. And he starts to name his sons. And then he says, and from these descendants... The peoples of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations, each with its own language. So as they start to ask, well, where do these people come from on the islands? And where do the people... Well, Moses is starting to explain who they are and where they came from. He continues. He talks about Ham's sons. Son number two, the middle child. Ham's sons, and this is a little bit longer, but Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush's sons, Sheba, Havilah, Sabath, or whatever, uh, Ramah, and, and Saptica. And Ramon's sons, Sheba, and Dedan. How about Cush fathered Nimrod, who became the power, who, who be, began to be a powerful, powerful in the land, and he was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. This is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom. Now, this is important because we recognize some of these these cities and and people groups. So his kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kelnak. In the land of Sinar, from the land from from the land from that land, he went on to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kalah, and Resin between Nineveh and the great city of Kalah. Mizraim, the father, fathered the people of Lud, Anan, Lehad, and a bunch of other places. <laughs> Drop down to verse fifteen. Oh boy, my tongue is already in a knot. Canaan fathered Sidon, the firstborn in Hath. Now again, listen to these. We all the ites appear. As well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gershabites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvadites. Like, you know, I want to call them uh, Archites, you know, whatever. Ardvarkites. The, the Shemarites. 
and the Hamathites. Then afterward the Canaanites clan scattered. The Canaanites border went, went from Sidon going down toward Gerar as far as Gaza on going towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Amada, and wherever that place is, is as far as Lasha. And these are the Ham's sons by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations. Now, I struggle with all those names. It's easier to read them than to say them. But here's what's important as we kind of process through all that. When the nation of Israel, and particularly when Abraham goes to Canaan, who does he start to see and who does he start to interact with? He starts to interact with all of Ham's sons and all of Ham's descendants. When the nation of Israel goes down into Egypt and they come out of Egypt and they come out as a nation, millions of people, and they go to the promised land, who are they interacting with all around them in the promised land? And who are the people groups that they tend with and contend with. It's all of the descendants of Ham. See, what was going on is Moses is starting to paint the picture and paint the understanding of who these people are, where these people have come from. Why? Because the nation of Israel is interacting with these people. You need to remember, Moses is writing this. He's writing this after the nation of Israel has left Egypt. The nation is being established. But they are interacting with all of these different people groups. So who am I interacting with? And who are these people? How do they relate to me? And, and, and how do they relate to God? And, and how does all of this fit? And it's helping them to understand and kind of put pieces in place. Then we have Shem's sons. Look at verse 21. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem's sons were Elam, Asherah, Arpachachad, Lud, and Aram. Now, you can, if you, if you can tell me later if I'm, how badly I'm doing this, and if you want to correct me some of my pronunciation, you can do that, but, oh, they kill me. Aram's sons, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachad fathered Salah, and Salah fathered Eber. Eber had two sons, one named Peleg, and, and, and for during his days the earth was divided. His brother's name was Jokan. And Jokan fathered Almodad, Shefla, another guy, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Abal, and a bunch more. Just go right on to verse 30. Their settlements extended from Mesha to Shefer, the eastern hill country. These are Shem's sons by their clans according to their language and their lands and their nations. Now, his kids are important too and we're going to unpack his genealogy more at the end of chapter 11. Now, Shem's kids are important because it's from Shem that Abraham comes. But again, putting all of this in context, putting all of this in place. 
Now we come back to this and we look at this and we say, well, why are some of these things important to people? Remember what Abraham said for his son when his son needed a wife? He said, go back to my home country and I get a wife for my son there. Was not going to marry someone from another part of the, the, the family tree. Go back to where my son was from. When Jacob fled, where did he flee? To an uncle's. So again, putting this in context and kind of being in that spot where you can start to wrap your head and wrap your understanding around the world that takes place. We do this all the time, but sometimes we... Now, we have the benefit of internet and that kind of stuff, but when when someone says Ukraine is being attacked and Russia is attacking Ukraine... Now, some of us instinctively understand the geography and kind of have an idea of where that is. Others of us, what do we do? What do you do? We go to the map, we, we go to Google, and we, and we kind of look it up and we say, okay, where does this fit? And then we start to realize that we know some people who have family there. We know some people who have moved from there, and we start to do this process of making connections. We're wired and we're inclined to have connections and kind of see how things all fit together. And I think, again, that's part of what's going on. God is explaining and mapping out how things started to unpack and flow after the flood. So let's kind of put a bow on chapter 10. So here's the conclusion. We start out at verse 1. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had, son, they also had sons after the flood. Okay, then you go down to verse 31. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. And you start to ask, where did everybody come from? This is where it all started for the history that we live in today. All of us come somewhere from Shem, Hem, and Japheth, all of us, as they were dispersed and spread out. Now let's look at Nimrod, Babylon, and Peleg. You know, you kind of want to say, you kind of switch that a little bit and call them Pegleg. You know, that's kind of, I don't know about your brain, but that's kind of how my brain goes. I want, I want to call them Pegleg, but it's Peleg. All right. So, look at Genesis chapter 6, and then we're going to go down to verses 8 to 12. Chapter 10, verses 8, beginning of verse 6. It says, Ham's sons Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. I want you to see that there. So these are Ham's sons. You then drop down to verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. One of the things I want you to see going on here is that Nimrod is the second generation after the flood. Alright? This is kind of an important kind of little piece of that puzzle. He's second generation after the flood. Let's keep on going a little bit. 
Nimrod, who became powerful in the land, he was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalnak in the land of Shinar. From, the land, from that land, he went on to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kalah, and, and raised between Nineveh and the great city of Kalah. Now, we start to see some of the things that Nimrod is doing. I kind of wrote this in my notes, and I, and I would particularly look at verse 10 as I see this. I said, it says, his, fam- his, his kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and, and it goes on. Here's what I put in my notes. He was the family alpha. All right? He was the one, I would suggest, that everyone started to listen to. So your second generation after the flood. He's that one who kind of probably bubbled up in the family that started to lead, that started to call shots, that started to say, this is what we need to do, this is where we need to go. We need to go do this. And he started to be followed. He was a city builder, a kingdom builder. And again, when you walk through biblical history, you'll see two of the cities that he built, Nineveh and Babylon. Both of them represent two significant nation groups that rose up in the period of history and both of them contended with each other for dominance but they both also had significant impact on the nation of Israel. Nineveh led the northern nation, northern tribes into captivity. Babylon led the southern tribes into captivity. Both had a significant influence on the nation of Israel. Now, something stands out as I look at this. I would think that somewhere, probably around the third generation, so Nimrod was second generation, Probably somewhere around third generation is probably about when he started to assert himself. Why would I say that? Because probably somewhere around there is when he's between his 20s and his 30s. Gives him enough time to grow up. Gives him enough time to learn different skills. Gives him enough time to start to assert himself in the family. And enough time for the family to start to listen to what he is doing. And to listen to what he is saying. So he didn't start to assert himself in the crib. He started to assert himself later. So we're probably looking, probably about the third generation. Is when he's starting to assert himself. And the family starts to follow. Now. This is important because then we come down to chapter 11. In chapter 11, we start to read about the Tower of Babel, or the Tower of Babylon. It says, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. 
Now, I listened to someone talk about this a little bit. I was, I was reading something uh, the other day. And someone was talking about this. All of us in the United States, for the most part, speak the same language. We, we have people that have come here from other countries and they might speak a different language. But most people, many people native to the United States, speak English. But have you ever noticed when you speak English and you go up to New York City, you sometimes speak differently than they do? Or if you go down to Louisiana and have a conversation with someone at the restaurant or the rest area and, and, and you start to talk to them about life and you realize that you have to listen a little bit differently. Because we have the same language, but now we don't quite have the same diction and we don't always have quite the same vocabulary. Because we're saying things sometimes a little bit differently and we mean things sometimes a little bit differently. Go down to Tennessee. Or the mountains of West Virginia. Go out to California. And as we start to go around our country, we start to discover that while most of us all speak English, there now start to become some regional distinctives and maybe some regional dialect components that stand out. But what's going on here is that the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. There was still while growing at this point in time, multiple, you know, in the thousands, maybe nine to 10,000 people at this point in time. But they're still a small enough group to be all on the same language place. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they're heading west. Where, where were they? They were in Mount Ararat, leaving the area of Turkey, heading east. They found great land and a great area where Babylon was. And they said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for, for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise, catch this last part, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Hey everyone, let's move here. This is a great area. It's fertile, it's level. It looks to be a wonderful area. We have irrigation, we have water, we have everything we need to thrive. Let's settle here. Let's build a city. And let's not all kind of get blown out. Let's kind of settle here and, and make this area home. What did God say? Fill the earth. filter out. What are they choosing to do? Hunker down. 
settle in. Now, people would also have a conversation about this, and um, there's a part of this that I wrestle with because I, it's, it's kind of interpretive, or they kind of extrapolate what they think it means, because they also say, let's build a tower that reaches to the sky. And so sometimes people would look at that and say, well, they're starting to go into uh, worship of the stars or astrology or those types of things. And you really don't know because the scriptures don't say a whole lot about it. It gives just a general statement, but it doesn't say a whole lot about what's driving some of the building of the tower and creating that infrastructure. But what we do see is they're saying, let's not disperse. Let's settle here. God creates and disperses the nations. We see that in the next verses 5 to 9. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, I don't think God's intention is to preserve ignorance because, again, one of the things I would suggest to you is that they're not Stone Age Okay, they maybe don't have all of the technology and all the understanding of things that were pre-flood, but they still came through the flood and they still brought with them knowledge and understanding. And so they have enough understanding at this point in time for metalwork. They have enough understanding for, for creating brick and, and mortar and, and being able to create structures and engineering and all of that kind of stuff. Come, let us go down there and confuse the language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, which is exactly what he had intended them to do. And they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon. And this is how it gets its name. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. I can't speak to all of the reasons that God may have chosen to scatter. For me, as I kind of process through this, I think there's probably two things that stand out. Number one, he had given a directive. He had given an explanation. He had given an expectation. And they were disregarding it. They were ignoring it. They were staying where they were instead of doing what God said to spread throughout the earth. And so what did God do? He brought pressure to bear and he did things that compelled that direction. Now I remember this as a father. Kyle wanted to get a tattoo. I wasn't all excited about that whole idea. Uh, But he was still living with us at the time. And I said to him, I said, well, Kyle... If you want to get a tattoo, that would suggest to me that you're making enough money at this point in time to pay rent. And I kind of talked about some of the financial obligations and the financial expectations that I would have for him. Because if he can afford to spend money on that, then he can afford to spend money on more important things. And so as I had this conversation with him, he he came back to me and goes, Well, you're telling me I can't get a tattoo. I said, no, I'm not saying that. I said, you can get a tattoo if you want. That's perfectly fine. You can do that if you want. But if you can afford that, then you can also afford these other things. 
And so it was a while yet then before he got a tattoo. He's got them now, but he's living on his own. He's making his own money. He's spending his own stuff and he's making his decisions, which is perfectly fine. But we at times do things that kind of compel our kids in directions that we want them to move or to consider things that we want them to consider. What is God doing? He's compelling a direction that he wants them to pursue. He wants the earth filled. He wants mankind to spread out. So that's number one. Number two, I think, left unchecked. The path that Nimrod was setting with the city of Babylon would have countered his agenda. And God was not going to allow something that was going to counter or thwart his agenda. God is going to pursue his purposes. The challenge for us in life is learning how to live in sync with God's agendas and learning to live in sync with the things that God wants done and then bringing our lives in sync with that. And again, this is the challenge that we face. This whole sin stuff that wrestles around on the inside of us. We know and understand the direction that God calls. We know and understand the things that God maps out. And yet very intentionally we at times choose to do something different. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And the very intention of establishing the city was to stay together instead of to disperse. Now, how about timing? Because I think the timing of this whole thing is kind of interesting. So let's go back up to chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 25. Now, Eber had two sons, one named Peleg, For during his days, the earth was divided, and his brother was named Joktan. Now, we don't need to worry about Joktan in this whole thing, but let's just go back to Peleg for a second. Do you know what his name means? Huh? You don't? You gotta be kidding me, you don't know what Peleg means? (laughs) I had to look it up too. It means divided. Divided. His parents named them divided. Why would they do that? I would suggest that it was right around the time where Peleg is being born that God confuses the language at the city of Babylon and disperses everyone. What do we name them? I don't know, but so much stuff is going on. Let's just call them divided because that's just what happened. We all just, it's like God took a hammer on a piece of, of something. Boom! and pew. We all got spread out. Call them divided. So where is Peleg in the whole chronological order of things? Peleg is right at the beginning or right around the fourth generation. Nimrod, second generation. I'm thinking somewhere between that second and third generation, he starts to assert himself, starts to lead all the people of the earth. Not, not, we're not talking about billions and billions, we're talking about thousands. Start to follow his lead, they gather in Babylon. 
About 40 years later, Peleg is born. And the people of the earth still are focused on what they are wanting to do instead of listening to and honoring God. And so God disperses them. Right around the time Peleg is born, fourth generation. Peleg ran 101 years, if you kind of follow the order, 101 years after the ark, after the flood. Nimrod, born around 30 years to 35 years after the flood. Now let's look at the last part of this. Abraham, Israel's origins and Job. Because Job, I think, fits in this whole conversation here. First of all, Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to chapter 2, verse 1. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham. We're following the family name of Shem. We're following the descendants of Shem. We did the math. I'm not sure if I remember. We're at the 11th or 12th generation after the flood. I did the math on here. I at least have that. So from the call from Abraham, from from the ark to the call of Abraham... According to the chronology, 367 years. 75 years of age, Abraham is called by God, and Abraham goes. 375 years, or 67 years. But what do we see? We see the chronology of Shem's descendants bringing us to Abraham. Now, as God is talking to the nation of Israel, this is really, 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 really important because who is Abraham? He is the father of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Let's just listen to this. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishkar. Ishka. Excuse me. Sarai was unable to conceive and she did not have a child. Terah took his son Abraham, Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter in law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And we start to read and we start to see the call of Abraham. Now, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And I think part of what is also taking place in this whole conversation is we're not just talking about the origins of the world and the origins of where everyone now is being dispersed so that people can start to wrap their head around the the global understanding and understand where different people groups are coming from and how all of that fits. 
But the nation of Israel now is also starting to understand its own personal origin story. Just as each of us pursue to understand our own personal origin story, which is part of why I went to Scotland. But we're also starting to understand the story and the pathway of God's work of redemption. We're starting now to see specifically and pointedly the conversation and the river or the flow, whatever, but that pathway, that stream connecting all the dots that brings us to Jesus and that takes us all the way back in the Garden of Eden from I will, when, when God announces his curse on the serpent, you will bite his heel but he will crush your head. We start to see the weaving of that process and it brings us to Abram whom God establishes a covenant with and it says, through you all peoples of the earth will be blessed. And we start to track that Abram, that promise to Abram, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And we start to see that as that is fleshed out with the nation of Israel. And of course the nation of Israel is interested in this because now they are leaving Egypt. They are pursuing and going towards the promised land. And they are understanding their place in history. They are understanding their place in the promise and in the work of God. And they are starting to wrap their head around who they are, who they are called to be, and what it is that God is seeking to accomplish through them. It helps them to understand their origins. One other thing is going on here. We don't see this in Genesis. But in the Old Testament, there is this book that's there. This book of Job. And it's just kind of sitting there. And it's an interesting, it's kind of like a sliver in the life of uh, uh, not a not a not a it's a little bigger than a snapshot uh, snapshot okay um, maybe it's um but it's a, it's a little bigger it's a it's a 30 second video so to speak instead of just a picture so let's pop over if you want we can go to job chapter 1 So where does Job fit into the context of all of this? Job fits into the whole context of the chronology of the events we're talking about. He fits in there somewhere between Nimrod and Abram. So about seven generations, eight generations, nine generations from Nimrod to Abram. Somewhere in there, I'll figure probably somewhere kind of in the middle is a story of Job taking place. And we read these words in the beginning of Job. And we won't read the whole thing. It's a, it's a larger book and it's a conversation that's taking place about who God is and, and part of why God does, does things and, and how we fit in the midst of all of that. It says, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. And, and Now, some people call him Job. I've always grown up calling him Job. But I guess maybe calling him Job is a little better than calling him Job. I don't know. But, but he was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. 
This is valuable. This is important because part of what we're seeing is through that history there were righteous men, righteous women, righteous individuals all through the process of history. And as you look through scripture and you look through history you always see individuals who are choosing to walk with and to know God. And sometimes there are more, sometimes there are fewer, but there's always people choosing to walk with and know God. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns having banquets in their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters and eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned having cursed God in their hearts. This way Job's this was Job's regular practice. And he was leading his family and, and calling them to righteousness and interceding on their behalf. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And, Satan's, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Now here's what's interesting, and this is what's unique about Job from all the other books. unique from what we see in Genesis. We have a window opened in heaven. And we start to catch a little glimpse of what is going on supernaturally, spiritually in the heavenly realms. We read through the account of Genesis and we don't see any of this heavenly process and heavenly conversation taking place. But Job opens that window and lets us peek in the window for a moment. The evil one replies from roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Now I would encourage you to read Job. It's an interesting read. But what I want you to understand is that in the midst of all the things that are going on, Moses doesn't talk about it. Moses doesn't record it. But in the midst of all that is going on from Genesis 1-1 to the end of chapter 11, there is a supernatural spiritual conflict taking place. It's taking place behind the scenes. It's taking place behind closed doors. It's not taking place on the open page. But it's impacting and affecting everything. 
There's a tension and a conflict. See, it's not just the battle that's going on on the inside of us and a wrestling for good and evil and a wrestling with God for righteousness or choosing to not live in righteousness. There's also an external force that's going on, an external pressure that's going on to push history and to push direction away from God. And God is at work seeking to address and to fix the tensions and the issues that are taking place. And God is recording the progression of history for the unveiling of his son and the unveiling of the promised Messiah, the one who's going to deal with sin, the one who's going to conquer the evil one, and who's going to crush his head and bring victory, and who's going to do recreation. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But as we process through this whole thing, I want you to recognize that God is in the midst of doing things that we don't always understand. And there are things that are taking place around us that we don't always understand. As an adult, I remember as a kid living in my home, but knowing there was stuff going on and and not always understanding it, And then later on, you become an adult. And you understand some of the pressures of life that your parents dealt with, but they didn't talk about around the dining table, or they didn't talk about as they drove back and forth, just like we don't always have these conversations with our kids about the things that are going on. And there's stuff going on. God just hasn't had all of the conversation with mankind. And he didn't have all of that conversation in Genesis 1 to 11. But Job cracks the window a little bit for us to peek. To see some of the heavenly tension that's influencing the flow of history. Now, what are some of the things that we should take away? I think there's at least two. Number one. God is in the process of doing things that we don't always understand and sometimes that don't always make sense. But God is always in the process of doing something. Why would he disperse the people? Why would he confuse their language? Why would he do that? Because he was doing something. He had a purpose for doing that. Why would he bring the flood? And and why would he do different things? We don't necessarily understand all of those pieces, but we know that God has a purpose. He is doing something intentionally. We need to learn to trust God. Some of you know bigger parts of my story and other parts of my story, and others may not know all those parts, but I've had some pretty hard things happen in life. Things that work at breaking you and kind of tearing your life apart. And through that process, I've learned that I really need to learn to trust God. Because there's stuff that happens, there's things that take place that we just don't always understand. And I know for me in this one particular event that I'm thinking about, I knew I came to this point where I had one of two choices. I said, Andrew, you're going to either trust God or you're going to curse him and you're going to 
you can't be a pastor anymore and you're going to have to go off and do something else and you're going to rage at the world. One of those two options is going to take place. And I recognized and I learned that I, if I really wanted to know purpose and fulfillment in my life, I needed to trust him. And I chose to continue to trust. That's part of the challenge that's going on here. Guys, God is telling his story. He's telling the events that are taking place. And we don't fully understand all of those things of what he's doing. We need to trust him. I think the second major thing that's going on is God is telling the story of redemption. God is telling the story of how we found and how we get Jesus. Jesus is the most important story of history. I think Jesus is more important than the creation account. The creation account and in the beginning of that process tells us why everything is messed up. But the story of Jesus is the story of God's love for us. It's the story of God's commitment to us. It's the story of God choosing not to bail and abandon us. He is telling the most important story of all of history. And it's important for us to listen to that story and honor that story and embrace that story. Now here's the caution I'll give. Just because I talk about it as a story, it's not just a story. It's something we need to embrace. It's something we need to build our lives around. We need to build our lives around Jesus. We need to embrace Jesus because Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. Jesus is the one who brings restoration. Jesus is the one who brings reconciliation. Jesus is the one who's going to recreate all that was damaged and destroyed through sin. So we might call it the story of Jesus, but he's so much more than that story. He's the most important story that's ever been told. And God is in the process of telling us the most important story that's ever been told. And he wants us to hear it from the beginning to the end. And I would encourage you to listen and take it in and embrace Jesus. We'll unpack this more next week and talk more. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I want to say thank you so very much for Jesus. Father, I want to say thank you that in the midst of all of the things that swirl around us, you give us the hope and the promise of life. You give us the hope and the promise of forgiveness. And, and Father, as we look at the story of uh, as it's unfolding in Genesis, Father, we, we see you connecting the dots from the very beginning to where we are even now. And I say thank you. Father, I would ask that you would build into us. Father, we can look at the events, we can look at the things that take place, and we can yawn, we can roll our eyes, we can dismiss. Or Father, we can learn to really trust you, even though sometimes all the pieces and all the parts don't make as much sense as we want them to make. And even though we have questions and and at times there are doubts and we, we wrestle with how all the pieces fit, Lord, I would ask that you would build into us a willingness to trust. 
And Father, as we see how God is tying and connecting the pieces of the story that bring us to the story of Jesus, Lord, I would ask that you would build into us a readiness to embrace Jesus, a readiness to embrace the promise of what you have done for every single one of us. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about God's wisdom and how he has a perfect plan throughout all of human history, may Isaiah 55, 8-9 pop out, where, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For sure, if I were in charge of everything, I would not be doing it how God did in Genesis. But he did what was best. And if you're here and you believe in Jesus, sometimes all you can do is cling to the truth that God's ways and thoughts are best. And all you can do is hold on to that truth and preach it to yourself over and over and over again. And if you are here and you have not believed in Jesus, the ultimate and the best way we see God's ways being best is as you look throughout Scripture and you see how God kept working and keeping his promises to send his son Jesus and how he's going to send him again. God's ways are so much higher and better than ours. And if you're here and have not believed in Jesus, God's way to salvation is best, and it is the only way. Trust in him and his sacrifice for you. What we're going to do now is we're going to have offering. It's going to come from the back forward. There's no obligation to give, but uh, as it passes, we're going to stand, and we're going to sing to this great God who we can cling to when nothing seems to make sense. So let us pray. God, I thank you that you give real, genuine hope. Thank you that you don't ignore the hard things in life where it feels like it feels like you don't know what you're doing. But I thank you that from the beginning to now and forever, your ways are best and you are good. I pray for those, God, who do know you as their Savior. Help them to trust you even when nothing makes sense and everything hurts. And Lord, I pray for those that do not know you. I pray that they will see your way to salvation is best. The only way to salvation. Work in our hearts, God. And I pray you will bless this offering so more people here in Tom's River will be able to hear about your good, perfect ways. And that as the missionaries we support, that your word will go out all over the world. I praise you, God, for who you are. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen.